are listening to A Little Too Quiet. This is the Ferndale Library Podcast, brought to you by the Friends of the Ferndale Library. And today we have the final episode in our six-part mini-series, where we have been focusing on information literacy. Librarian Michelle Williamson will be joining me to have a conversation with Lauren Abdel-Razak, the Digital Director for the Detroit News. And we are going to be discussing deep fakes. But before we get to that discussion, we want to talk about another aspect of misinformation, and that is spread. If there is one thing we've all become painfully familiar with in 2020, it's viruses. How they spread and what to do to prevent the spread. Also, how to contain a virus if it's transmitted. We can also think of misinformation as a virus. There's a reason we talk about things, quote unquote, going viral on the internet after all. Turns out, that's not just a metaphor. Two Stanford cyber risk researchers, management science and engineering professor Elizabeth Pate Cornell and PhD candidate Travis Trammell have adapted a model for understanding diseases that can infect a person more than once to understand how people are susceptible to falling for misinformation or disinformation online. They also look at how many people have been exposed to certain fake news stories and how many of those people are likely to spread the misinformation by sharing it. Pate Cornell and Trammell concluded that the elderly, the young, and the lesser educated are more likely to be susceptible to fake news. However, those most likely to fall for it are those on the extreme ends of the political spectrum. Those who are most partisan are more likely to share misinformation because of, you guessed it, confirmation bias. As we've talked about previously on this podcast, we love to share information that reinforces our own convictions. Trammell has said, I'm very concerned about a deliberate disinformation attack in a situation where there is a conflict between two nations. But I guess what I'm more concerned about is death by a thousand cuts that this contributes to the erosion and undercutting of the institutions of democracy, but it does so slowly over time so that we don't recognize the gravity of what's going on until perhaps it's too late. Of concern in their findings is that even when some participants were informed that they had been given false information, they still exhibited a residual belief in it. Trammell concludes that one of the best ways to counter false information is to obstruct it before it comes in contact with consumers. He calls this strategy pre-bunking as opposed to debunking and cites France as a country that did this with some success before their last presidential election. The government warned citizens that false information would be deployed to try and sow discord and foster distrust. They thus limited exposure to the misinformation virus. We would also liken pre-bunking to mask wearing or social distancing with bad information. When asked what are some of the things everyday people can do to inoculate themselves against fake news, Trammell advised, one, never rely on a single source for information, two, revisit things that are inflammatory later in the day, as opposed to getting worked up and sharing them immediately, and three, look closer at the source of information and author. You can refer back to our discussion of the SIFT method in our episode from July 28th with Jake Neer and Shiraz Ahmed for moves to use on that last piece of advice. When Pate Cornell was asked the difference between the 2016 and 2020 elections on the misinformation front, she said, deep fakes, and that there is a race between artificial intelligence producers and those who recognize AI ahead of time. 
The researchers also noted that news consumers are much more likely to believe video or audio news formats than they are text. On that note, let's dive a little deeper into deepfakes with Lauren Abdel-Razak. What digital director implies? What, what Tell us about your job title. Uh, well, it's a fancy way of saying that I oversee the team that runs the online and digital presence at the Detroit News. So our website, our uh, apps, our mobile site, just the way stories look and are presented online. Uh, we have a team of some really amazing people and it's been crazy, especially during the pandemic, but everybody's doing an amazing job keeping it together. <laughs> yeah, I feel like uh, this, this sort of this bond between librarians and and newspaper staff in terms of how you guys have had to both evolve into the 21st century, right? You guys are both known throughout the 20th century as being this print-based books mm-hmm. and newspaper stands, and now you're both very much on the internet. I, uh, I told my coworker I was going to be doing this podcast, and he was like, wait, it's for the library? We're <laughs> library. all evolving into the future. <laughs> library podcast. Okay, so we are going to start with something that may or may not still be obscure to some people, and that is deep fakes. So Lauren, for those listeners who, who may not have heard of them or who have heard of them already, but they might not be exactly sure what they are, can you give us a basic definition? Sure. Before we do that, though, we kind of have to establish some other definitions to help us understand. The first word is misinformation. So in this case, with misinformation, we're talking about incorrect information that's getting passed along. But in general, um, it's not done on purpose or with bad intention. In a lot of cases, it's people who will share things uh, without verifying information. Happens a lot on social media when people are like sharing memes and posts without actually checking to verify if the content is true first. The second term to understand is uh, disinformation. So this is where someone shares information that's like deliberately false and it's generally done for nefarious purposes. Deepfakes are an example of this. So with a deep fake, it's where a person in an existing image or video is replaced with someone else's likeness, and it's uh, using AI computer programs. So many of the well-known examples that are out there right now are done as proof of concept or for entertainment purposes, Um, but there's always the potential for someone to use the technology for harm. I'm going to include, I know you said we could include some links with this. Yeah, It's kind of hard to talk about video when we're dealing with a podcast uh, because I can't show examples. But we've got, I've got a couple of them that I really like that I've pulled uh, and put together. We'll make sure we share with everybody. Maybe you can emphasize um, how uh, inherently creepy they kind of are. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so some of them are super creepy. My favorite one is actually this one of Bill Hader. He's, um, he's on a talk show and he's going through and doing uh, impressions of different people. And at the same time, his face is transforming into... The people that he's impersonating, so Tom Cruise and Arnold Schwarzenegger, it's really creepy, but it's yeah. also super funny. And, you know, <laughs> people thought this might be real, but when you actually looked into it, it was an example of a deep fake where they were, you know, using AI to map his face and put his, put you know, someone else's face over his. Um, a lot of people have seen the one with President Obama. Jordan Peele did this as a proof of concept. You know, he did a lot of impersonations of uh, Obama when he was in office. And so he made a deep fake where he made President Obama speak and say things, um, but it was really him uh, impersonating the voice. And that one was for the time. It was super, super great because, mm-hmm. you you know, you still had that eeriness like you could kind of tell right. that something was off, but it was really quite good for the time. The most recent one I've seen that was really 
well done is this one on the Nixon moon disaster. Um, there was a whole site that launched with it and it was for educational purposes to show people just how, how good a deep fake can be. And so in this case, you know, Nixon was talking about a crash on the moon, uh, which never happened. Right. But if you look at this video, you would think that, oh yeah, it's real. Right. Uh, so technology is getting so much better as we go along. And even if you just Google it, what a deep fake is, there's so many programs that you can use to try and make them. It's just a matter of, you know, how intricate it is and how advanced it looks. And uh, so it's really an interesting topic. Yeah. Yeah. And just to throw this in here, you have to understand as the digital director, how visceral images are in terms of just activating a response in someone who's coming to, let's say the Detroit News's website, it can be so easy to believe. Even anecdotally, I should say, let me bring this up real quick. I just caught my brother believing a deep fake. <laughs> Apparently over the last year, there's some producers out there who wanted to create their own little short films that, that make it look like Keanu Reeves is being like a real life superhero and stopping like uh, <laughs> uh, Quickie Mart, like uh, holdups. See, the and problem is, though, that's easy to believe. It's easy it's to believe. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it can be so eerily real. Well, and so you you just kind of touched on, you know, figuring out how to make these deep fakes. Could you say more about that? How do people make them? And do we know where these deep fakes are coming from? Right. So it's still relatively challenging to make a convincing deep fake. Thank goodness for that. Mm-hmm. Like I said, technology is improving every day. Uh, the typical way you would make one that's convincing involves using a, a full studio and a controlled environment. You'd have an actor sit in and replace that person that you're impersonating. Uh, they would say their lines and, you know, their message or whatever. And then later on, the um, AI is used to map the mouth movements and facial expressions to that person you're impersonating. But like, like I said, too, I mean, there are some programs now that claim that you can make a convincing deep fake just from your home computer without having to have a studio. They don't tend to be as real looking yet. But again, we're getting better and better all the time. Right. And, you know, you kind of look at them and there's usually just something off about it where you're like, this seems strange. And it's, you know, I can't really maybe put my finger on it, but something seems off. Like I said, a lot of the deep, the really good deep fakes were done as proof of concept and not for bad reasons. One place where you can see deep fakes is in pornography. Unfortunately, people will have um, impersonation of celebrities or something like that. Uh, but when it comes to really effective deep fakes and like day to day, especially for journalists, we're really glad that's still pretty rare. There's a lot of other disinformation out there that is much more common. And sometimes that's even harder to spot than a deep fake. Yeah. For me, it was spotting the fact that they were doing a terrible Keanu Reeves impersonation. So you just got to <laughs> keep your ears open and your eyes open. So Lauren, in the journalism industry, a key standard is verification before publication. So how, do, how does that affect your ability to report on deep fakes? So again, deep fakes are not necessarily the uh, most serious problem we're facing right now with misinformation and disinformation. I like to use the Washington Post fact checker has a really awesome guide on manipulated uh, images and video. So I really like to use that and I'll make sure that we include a link to that for, sure. for people to check out afterwards. But like I said, sometimes the hardest, the easiest the hardest ones to spot are the ones that are the simplest to do. So we have things like with missing context. And we see this all the time when we're trying to verify information or tips that people send to us. Common example of this is like someone sends us a video of some kind of interaction, but the frame is tight on the incident and we can't see what's going on off camera. You know, we get people who accuse us of like hiding the truth or taking sides because we just don't take that at face value and post it. 
this is a, uh, an opportunity where we would look at this and say, okay, we've got to do a little bit of detective work here and figure out, you know, some other clues into what's going on to make sure that this is real. So um, we have to take a look at like who provided the video and what motivation they may have for giving it to us beyond being a concerned citizen. Uh, we got to look and see if the video appears edited or clipped or altered in some way. And I'm not talking about anything fancy, just something you could do on your, on an app on your phone, you know, whether you can slow it down, speed it up, cut out frames and things like that. Um, you always want to look and see if the video is staged. So if you can tell like someone's doing this, you know, to put on a show for you and it's not actually real, you know, you ask for more details from the person who gave you, gave you the information. So you're, you know, you're looking to say, all right, they said it happened at night. We're looking at the lighting, the shadows to try and see if this matches up with that time that they said, um, trying to independently verify the location and seeing if it occurred in an area with other surveillance video that we could get access to. You know, you always want to see if other people are talking about it on social media or, you know, putting it out on the internet, if they've got other photos or videos available of the same incident, because that can help give you a fuller picture of what's going on. If the cops were involved, obviously we would give them a call and ask them if they had any information or video or what they, you know, if they had anything to say. Basically try to reach out to anyone you can who's involved and see if you can get that information. And then, you know, we always, if, if it's something we're really, you know, not sure and we can't verify it by looking from our office, of course, we'll send someone out to the scene, see if they can find witnesses or, you know, be able to figure out what went on. Um, so it's never just a process of where we, you know, we get something in and we say, okay, we'll just put it up there. We always have to check with it and make sure it's accurate, verifiable, newsworthy. One thing we've had, a, we've also had a problem with is that idea of edited video, um, where people will cut out frames to make something appear different than it actually was. Uh, we recently had an attorney, I'm not going to get into specifics and names, but we recently had an attorney who uh, sent us a video where there were frames removed from this uh, video that was showing his client involved in a situation. And it made it look like there was less buildup to what was actually the, you know, the incident when in reality it was a much longer time until the incident occurred. So we could tell from this video that, you know, frames were missing because stuff was jumping. There was a time like it was surveillance video. So there was a time in the corner we had to, in that situation, go through, look at the video. We had to put a disclaimer on it to explain that we were provided a video with frames missing and that, you know, we decided in the end that it was significant and newsworthy enough that it was we should show it to the public, that they, you know, should see it. But we had to make sure that uh, we gave the readers the information that they needed to understand that this was edited video that we were presenting. So when we were first conceiving of this series, the idea was initially inspired by the run-up to the election. Can you talk about ways that deepfakes can be a threat to politics? Yeah, deepfakes and disinformation, I think, are a huge part of politics right now. I mean... Starting at the top, we have a president who's extremely active on Twitter, obviously. Um, he's also been known to post disinformation and memes and photos and videos, and he's got 86 million followers on Twitter. So he can reach a ton of people without ever having anyone, you know, back read his tweets or check and make sure that the information is verified. So there's a lot of, like, when you have, when you have that much power and that much influence, there's a lot of responsibility that goes into it. And, I, and I'm not sure if there's uh, if he's upholding, you know, with that responsibility to inform his followers with correct information, which is the nice way of saying it. Sorry. Um, <laughs> we've got uh, we've also got foreign interference on social media ads and posts. I mean, we've had this confirmed that there was um, interference in the 2016 election with disinformation and, and like full on campaigns to make that happen. We've got politicians who insist on using the term fake news 
which in reality, news by definition is not fake. So fake news does not exist. Um, when news is reported out by you know legitimate media organizations, it's researched, verified, fact-checked before it goes out. And if something is fake, it cannot be news. We've got politicians who use the terms alternative facts. Again, that doesn't exist. Facts are facts and alternative facts are just lies. Um, and then finally, you've got the potential for someone to create a deep fake of politicians like Joe Biden or Donald Trump. And it could be shared on social media and it could spread like wildfire before either campaign even gets a chance to see it or, you know, explain that it's not real. Um, so there's a lot of potential here for harm uh, in the run up to the election. And it could have an impact on the election. Yeah, this is the video form of lying. I mean, really. And as a journalist, if you were a journalist in the 70s. If you were Woodward and Bernstein, maybe a, a politician would lie to your face. But now people have these tools to create fantasies and then share it on social media. It's such a dangerous, uh, dangerous. This is situation. why we talk about having organizations and agencies like journalists and to, um, you know, hold people to people in power to account. Mm-hmm. Because without anyone checking them on this, they can do this without, you know, any consequences whatsoever for them transparency. So Lauren, in other episodes here on this podcast, we have uh, equipped our listeners with fact-checking tools that we wanted to provide them like uh, these um, practices like reading laterally and uh, tracing claims and quotes upstream. Deep fakes seem like a whole, as we've been talking about, a whole new level of difficulty when we're trying to give a detection tools to, to, to them, to anyone. Are there things that, you know, folks like Michelle and I lay people can look for when we're attempting to determine whether a photo or a video is a deep fake. Right. So this is a topic I love because there are actually things you can do to verify in the same way that journalists would. We do many of the same things that anybody else could do. Um, So some tips I would offer for, you know, trying to root out disinformation, including deep fakes or even beyond. um, I would say that you should always question everything. It's so important for people to be thinking critically about what they see, especially on social media and media sites in general. Question the validity, including the sources that you're following. Ask yourself if what you're reading sounds strange or unlikely or too good to be true, like the Keanu Reeves thing. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> I want to believe it. it. You know, it's uh, it's you know, it's always worth following up and verifying before you share that information along with others because you don't want to be part of that chain of uh, misinformation or disinformation. Uh, the best thing you can do to make sure that you are well-informed and have, you know, a level of media literacy is to diversify your information sources. So are you getting a good variety of sources for your news? Or are you relying solely on one source like social media, word of mouth from friends? Are you only watching 24-hour cable channels? Are you checking out local TV news, local newspapers, national newspapers? I mean, as you go out and look at these things, you know, when you start to get beyond the local you generally see people taking a stance or having a, you know, leaning one side or the other. When you get to social media, it's a free for all. No one is there really back checking. I know that Facebook and Twitter are starting to flag posts now to say if something is blatantly false. Um, but again, they can only fact check a fraction of the posts that are on there. So really uh, the best way to get a fully informed picture of what's going on is to make sure you're paying attention to more than a single source of information. Um, social media is just really challenging in general, but when you're on social media, you should always look at who's sharing the information and what they're sharing. People obviously have motivations and biases and political leanings. So you have to take that into account with what they're sharing, uh, you know, what their purpose is. 
look for patterns of behavior in posts that might suggest a bot. We could do a whole other podcast just on bots and mm-hmm. bot behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, if you're following someone on Twitter and even if they look like they're real and they may be a bot that's posting the same things over and over again, or the same ideas, um, you know, just always pay attention to where you're getting this information from. Take an extra second to look back and see, okay, where's the source? Where did this come from? And can I verify it on another place? Um, that's the other thing, like look at multiple places to verify information before you pass it along with others. So photos actually kind of easy to verify in a way because we have Google. Um, you can do a reverse image search on Google and we'll make sure to add a link to that so you can um, you know check out check that out. But it's quite cool because you know Google keeps a record of a lot of things on the internet and it's the easiest way to track down where the photo was originally shared. Um, you can also see similar photos. So you can see if this photo, you know, maybe it started out this way, but then it was altered and shared this way. So that's a really easy way. And we use it all the time at the news when we're like, you know, get tips or things that we see on social media to try and verify that, you know, these are real. So that might be, you know, one way to check it out. You can also go to fact checking sites, the Washington Post and the Associated Press have great fact checking sites, even something as simple as Snopes, (laughs) which people laugh at me for suggesting, but uh, even that could help you get on the right path for verification. Okay, so we talked a little bit about earlier when you're watching videos, check for disclaimers, uh, the sources, whether you notice the frames skipping, jumping, missing, if the video was slowed down or sped up. There's a there's an interesting example people might have seen of like Nancy Pelosi, where the Republicans put out this video that showed her slurring her words and right. sounding like she was drunk when she was speaking. In reality, that video had been slowed down one and a half percent, and it was it was just done with a simple, uh, you know, app on the phone that you can do to slow video down and it made her sound drunk. Um, so if you didn't really think about that and think, Hey, this is a little weird. Is this true? You would have just assumed she was, you know, up on the stage speaking while she was drunk. Right. So, you know, things like that to look for deep fakes, you have to be even more critical. You have to see if the mouth and the sound matches up, if the expressions match up, um, see if what's being said makes sense. And if it sounds really outlandish and you wouldn't believe that person would say something like that, definitely question it, uh, search it out for other sources of information and don't just take it at face value. Well, quick follow up on that. Could you just say something real quick about bots? We didn't touch on that, but I feel like we should. It's like software, right? Or it's like AI. It's uh, yeah. it- Some of them are really advanced. Some of them are quite simple. You'll see them on Twitter. Some of them are just, you know, the eggs on Twitter and they're posting the same thing over and over again. And that, in that case, it's extremely obvious. If this is another time when you can use the Google reverse image, because if you suspect someone is a bot and they have a photo in their profile, you can search that photo and see if it traces back to an actual human being. A lot of bots, you know, they'll be posting at the same time every day. They'll have similar messaging, but change maybe, you know, just a couple of the words. These are, you know, tend to be when they're political bots anyway, and not just spamming, you know, they'll have very strong leanings towards one side and have the same message that they're, they're trying to get out constantly. But yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty common. There's a way to search and we did it once on the Detroit news and it was a little shocking. You can search your Twitter followers to see how many of them are suspected of being bots. And, uh, it's quite fascinating. It's pretty staggering. Just how many are out there. I have, I have a, just a quick comment that will lead perfectly into Michelle's next question. I really just got this image in my head, Lauren, of, of you as kind of like a park ranger who's going out into, uh, the various parks of Twitter, Instagram, and and Facebook with uh, a net with, with a BS net. And you're just trying to like catch all this BS. And I really, really feel like the Twitter park has the most problems to deal with. 
Twitter is a great place for journalists. We, we naturally live on Twitter because that's where information comes out fast and it allows us to get our information out quickly. Obviously, the problem is, is that when information is put out quickly, it can be harder to verify or it means people didn't verify it before they put it out there. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, Twitter is can be an extremely useful tool, but it's also got a lot of red flags to watch. Right. How does it feel to be doing your job right now? <laughs> We're curious, uh, like what you and your colleagues think about this. And I say this with quotes, fake news era or, you know, this era we've entered where people are questioning journalists and journalism and the media more so than they have in recent years. Yeah. So I'm going to attempt to not get preachy here, but, uh, but you brace yourselves. Yeah. <laughs> so um, as a local news journalist, I can tell you that what we really want is to be able to provide the public with accurate, clear and useful information. So that allows them to make their own educated decisions about circumstances that affect their lives. Um, we have a code of ethics that we follow. And, uh, you know, in our newsroom, we're not sitting there thinking about quotas or how many stories are we going to be able to get out today? Or, you know, how many clicks do we need on this article or whatever? Um, We're not here for that. At the core of it, we're still here trying to perform a service for the public. Um, The vast majority of what we do can be done by pretty much anyone, uh, including filing Freedom of Information Act requests. I don't know if your listeners are familiar with that, but that is something that any uh, citizen of Michigan can file and they can use it to get information about any public body. And I encourage people to do that. You know, people can go to public meetings and hold public officials accountable. These are all the jobs that journalists also do. Um, We want them to be going out there and doing that. Being a journalist, I think the difference is that it gives us different levels of access than the average person sometimes. Um, So we know that this gives us a responsibility. And part of that is being as fair as we can be, as unbiased as we can be. I say that knowing that because we're human beings, you can never be completely unbiased. Mm -hmm. But it's our duty to represent the different sides of a situation in ways that give people information so that they can come to their own conclusions. The idea of uh, fake news, all it does is create an otherness that's just in place to further erode trust against journalists at a time when there's fewer of us than ever and the industry is kind of struggling. And I realize that building trust is not an easy task, especially like if the only time you show up to a place is when the worst thing ever has happened. Mm-hmm. Um, we, I know we need to do a better job of getting out there into the community and building relationships. I mean, there's a lot of evidence for that. Um, I was looking at Gallup polling and they're saying, you know, talking about trust in news, it's uh, reached its lowest point right around the 2016 election. And it's been going up a little, but it's still, you know, quite, quite sad. <laughs> there's also, you know, that we know there's this massive partisan divide when it comes to trusting news. We've I've seen Pew Research that's saying that like, only 21% of adults in the U.S. have ever spoken to a journalist. And that number goes down the younger you are and the less white that you are. Hmm. So we know we have our work cut out for earning trust with our readers. And I've gone, I've been on assignments. You know, I, I'm the digital director now. I used to be a reporter. I go out on assignments. And uh, I've seen people wearing those shirts that, you know, call journalists the enemy of the people and saying that we need to be hung and stuff like that. And the whole thing, it just makes it harder to keep doing our job. But we don't get into this industry. We don't do this job for money, fame, or really any other reason than that we believe there's a value to telling the news. And it's a key thing for having a free press in order to have a free society. Um, so that's something we're trying to work towards and uphold every day. Yeah, it is an uphill battle because the whole thing about this series that we've been doing is that it just is reiterated for us that sort of the, the elephant in this room, I feel, is confirmation bias. People want 
very often their perception of reality to be confirmed. And sometimes if the journalist is giving them a, a hard pill to swallow or something that contradicts that reality, you see this friction come back. So The internet is an amazing tool, but it's also the easiest way for confirmation bias. Right. In the past, you would have uh, newspapers where you would get your news from, and the people in charge at the newspapers would tell you what stories were important to you and give that out to you. I don't agree with that in the sense that I don't think that's necessarily the best way to give out information is to pick it for other people. But now we've got the exact opposite. You know, we've got the internet, you can search anything and you can find confirmation for whatever you believe. Right. So this is where, you know, having to be responsible about, you know, checking your sources and getting a, a variety of information and diversifying your sources of information really comes in because it can help you get over the confirmation bias. Well, thank you. We're really trying to educate the public and kind of fill in some of these gaps that people might have. And this, these kinds of conversations are, you know, what we're trying to put out there to, to help with those gaps. So really appreciate you having me here. I'm, I love talking about this. Obviously, this is my passion and uh, thrilled, thrilled to be here and talk with your listeners. Thank you. Thank Please you so much. Something. Thank you so much for being here, Lauren. Yeah, thank you. And that was our chat with Lauren Abdel-Razak, the digital director of the Detroit News. And she had so much great information to share with us. We're going to be having links to everything that she talked about in our show notes on the podcast's website. You can link to that from the library's main page, which is ferndalepubliclibrary.org. And this is A Little Too Quiet, the Ferndale Library podcast. It is brought to you by the Friends of the Ferndale Library. If you want to support this podcast, you can go to ferndalefriends.org. My name is Jeff Milo, and we produce this podcast in-house right here at the Ferndale Library. I was joined, as I always am, on these information literacy installments by librarian Michelle Williamson. We thank you for listening. <laughs>